This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Half the people in Colorado's jails haven't been convicted of anything. Most of them just can't pay bond. Now, Colorado's looking at how else they could get people to show up for trial. Taking the lead is the state's Supreme Court Chief Justice. CPR's Allison Sherry has been exploring pre-trial detention issues around the state and joins us to talk about what's at stake. Allison, welcome. Thank you. So what got us to this point? Well, there are two really big things moving this sort of so-called movement of bail reform across the country. One is the higher courts. There was this one specific case out of Houston, Texas, the Fifth Circuit ruled that it was actually unconstitutional to hold people in jail pre-trial if they ha- if they had no ability to pay sort of with before they've been convicted of anything. Mm. And that decision caught the attention of judges and lawyers around the country. A lot of them have changed course on this sort of money bail Um, after that decision came out. And another is sort of, as you said, jails in Colorado are just really teeming right now. They're overcrowded. And there's some incentive now, according to some advocates, to start and try to figure out some of the solutions to this overcrowding. Here is uh, Judge Carlos Samor. He's the chief judge in Arapahoe County, and he's one of the leaders of this new blue ribbon panel um, formed by the state Supreme Court to look at these issues. It cuts both ways, right? We are probably keeping some people that don't need to be detained, and we may be releasing people who should not be released. For those of us who haven't gone through this system, can you give us a quick reminder of how bail actually works? Yeah, so the the concept of cash bail has been around since the Middle Ages. Um, There are two things. When a judge is sitting there looking at someone who's been charged with a crime in their courtroom, there are two things the judge thinks about. One is, is this person dangerous to society or themselves? And are they willing to or likely to return to court? Or, you know, are they going to flee? Um, And the way bail works is the judge sets a dollar amount and you pay it or your family member pays it or you can get a bail bondsman to guarantee it for you and you get to leave and go home until your trial. So the idea is having the money at stake will get people to come back for their trial, right? Well, a lot of people think that. Um, uh, lawyers, judges think that, that cash bonds sort of incentivize people to come back to court. But there's actually been no real data that supports that. There's no science or evidence that says posting money helps anything. That's Bo Zirup. He's a chief district attorney in Mesa County in Grand Junction, and he's done a ton of research on sort of the incentives of cash bail and whether that affects, you know, the failure to appear rates, the the amount of the, the number of times people return to court. Hmm. And one thing that's been proven to help people um, sort of better than cash bail is actually like text message reminders, email reminders, sort of like if you're going to the dentist or the hairdresser. I talked to a judge in Boulder who has a couple of people working on reaching out to people via Facebook book to remind them of upcoming court appearances. And it's actually helped. So uh, text messages, uh, messaging someone on Facebook, this is the kind of stuff the state hopes to explore with this new Blue Ribbon Commission? Yeah, exactly. You know, Judge Samore um, has been tracking this sort of movement across the country. Various states have gotten rid of cash bail. Um, the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office just announced they were getting rid of cash bail. But he was pretty careful about what his opinion was on all of this, you know, including that big Texas case I was talking about. But he did say that Colorado used to be a leader on this back in 2013. And he feels like the state's fallen behind. Um, and he also sort of has this interesting perspective, you know, because he's a judge. And I asked him about what the fear judges have um, about letting people go and about what what it is when they're trying to set a bail. And this is what he had to say. The only tool that judge has to protect the community in that instance is to set the bond so high in terms of a monetary bond that the person can't post it, the person can't get out. 
And that's what we're, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at is that if you give judges, you know, a hammer as the only tool, then that's the only tool they're going to use. But, you know, judges don't really know whether someone can actually post a bail. They might set some set a bail really high and that person can come up with the money. They might set a bail really low and think this person can, you know, find $500 and they can't. So it's made the whole system really kind of random. We may be keeping some people that don't need to be detained. And we may be releasing people who should not be released. Because remember that. Just because we set a monetary bond, we might set it high thinking that this is a dangerous person. But if they can come up with the money, if they have access to money, they're going to be released. How do judges decide what amount of person's bail should be anyway? Well, Judge Samore talked a lot about this piece. In 16 of the state's biggest counties, they have this sort of system called pretrial services. It basically just means a court employee looks, sort of analyzes a person's flight risk. You know, they look at their prior arrests. They look at whether they have a job. They look at whether they think that they're going to leave. They have family here, that sort of thing. And then the judge looks at that assessment and can kind of set a bail or think about what he or she wants to do based on that work. But for the counties that don't have this, and there are a lot of counties that don't have that, I mean, more than, you know, 50, the judges are flying more blind. Um, Although each jurisdiction has recommended sort of bail amounts for any given crime, the judges kind of do what they want. And some more talks about making this pretrial services, you know, these employees who sort of look at different people and what their flight risks are more consistent across the state, sort of like, you know, the state's probation department, for example. And that would cost money, you know, but he said maybe the savings of cutting down on jail populations could fund it. Now, this commission will be gathering opinions from various groups. What did they have to say about all this? Well, you know, ad- some advocates for bail reform say this is way too long in coming. They point out that in 2013, the state legislature took action on this, passed a law that was actually supposed to require judges to take into consideration whether someone had the ability to post a bail or not. But judges are kind of checkered on this. Some don't do it at all. Some do it. This is Rebecca Wallace at the American Civil Liberties Union. We don't have any more time. Uh, not only because there are thousands of people across the state who are languishing in jail, pretrial, innocent in the eyes of law, solely because they don't have the money to bond out, but also because change is coming across the country. Courts agree that when you have a system of wealth-based detention, that that violates our equal protection and due process clauses. Rebecca Wallace has been working on this for years. She's actually successfully gotten some lower-level judges across the state to change course and get rid of money bail. So what would the alternatives be here? Well, Judge Samore talked about this sort of either-or system that gives actually a lot of power back to judges. That is, like, a judge looks at a defendant in his courtroom and decides either this person needs to stay in jail until their trial, you're dangerous or you might run away, or you deserve to go home without paying anything and go on with your life and then come back to court. And with that, the whole, you know, sort of the whole cash bail system would sort of be thrown out given its inconsistencies. And there are a few places that are actually trying this, including New Jersey. Um, they did a whole bail reform, getting rid of a lot of the, the cash bails, and they've seen their jail population drop 36 percent. Is there anyone opposing uh, this reform in the state? Well, you know, judges have misgivings about this. They sort of think that they think of bail as their one sort of tool hammer they have to get people back to court. But the only people who are really just sort of wholesale um, opposing this that I've I've talked to, at least, are the bail bondsmen um, who, you know, have an obvious business related reason. The fact that we can never make it perfect doesn't mean that we can't strive for it. And we have to try to make it evidence based and we have to do the best we can to make the most accurate risk assessments possible. 
so these risk assessments are important and, and important, and bail bondsmen uh, are, seem to be really against this for some obvious reasons uh, based above. So is there any timeline for when this commission looking at bail and pretrial detention will wrap up its actual work? Well, they're sort of meeting for an undetermined amount of time right now. But the recommendations will eventually, according to Judge Samore, go to the state Supreme Court. And if there's any major reform, like sort of what New Jersey did, it would probably also likely head to the legislature. And I understand your ongoing reporting on these issues recently took you to southern Colorado. Uh, where are you looking at uh, where you're looking at county jails and, and problems that they're facing? What did you find down there? Yeah, I went on a two-day reporting trip, and I visited four county jails um, in Pueblo, Sawatch, Costilla County, and Alamosa. And I found that there were four main problems with these county jails. One is just way overcrowding. One is that these, these a lot of these county jails are just in terrible conditions. Um, you know, you can... One has sort of it's just in an old house and you can just open the window and escape. They have people escape all the time. Mm. Um, one is that drugs is a huge issue in, in contributing to that overcrowding. And, and the fourth issue I found is that there's just a number of people sitting in these poorer parts of the state in jail pretrial for pretty small offenses, for driving infractions, that sort of thing. So my stories are going to tell a different problem from a different jail every day. And all those stories will be airing next week. All right. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Nathan. CPR's Allison Sherry covers justice for us. Still to come, bugs. Lots and lots of bugs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's turn now to insects. Denver science and culture writer David McNeil says we have much to learn from bugs. His latest book is called Bugs, the Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. He spoke to Ryan Warner last year and says by copying insects called biomimicry, humans can improve architecture, healthcare, and even national security. And David joins us in front of an invited audience at the Dairy Center in Boulder. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. You write that sociologically, we humans have a lot in common with insects. I would not think that. Why do people and insects actually have a lot in common? Well, just the way we act. I mean, you look at ants. They're some of the most bizarre, strangest creatures, and so are humans. But, like, they have this whole colony. You have workers. You have soldiers. You have this whole thing working together. We could just, I don't know, learn a lot from just studying them. It's pretty remarkable what observing ants looking down at the sidewalk can do. What what did you learn about yourself studying bugs? Bugs frighten me, or or used to. Not all of them, but some of them still do. I'm kind of in the middle of the road now. And it was just, I was compelled to find out, like, where exactly we fit in their world and the history of like how we've interacted. You write that spiders in particular surpass your fear of death. Yep. yep. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is quite a project to take on for someone who's squeamish. Well, I mean, I sent you this video of like me, you know, trying to help tarantulas reproduce. And in one hand, I was helping them have sex, reproduce. The other, I'm still kind of, you know, scared of them. And I think it's just that unpredictable nature. However, I will say that I admire them more than any other creature on this planet. Tarantulas? Uh, tarantulas, insects, bugs, the whole 
rollspiel. Yeah. You admire them more than any other creature on the planet. You write that insects compose 75% of the animal kingdom. Right. And what makes you admire them so? For one, I mean, the, the planet would smell terrible if insects did not exist. I mean, if you talk about dung, you talk about organic waste decomposing, eh, you know, insects get a lot done. For instance, maggots can break down a body down to 60% of its body weight. They're the world's best shredders, and they return nutrients back to the earth. They are the invisible force gluing this whole planet together. It's often that people who love insects are depicted as creeps. Uh, Think of (laughs) films like The Silence of the Lambs, the character who skins women adores bugs. Uh, In The Collector, the kidnapper adores butterflies. But you met real-life insect lovers, many of them scientists, and you talked about impregnating a tarantula or helping <laughs> that happen. Yeah. <laughs> That's bystander. an important distinction. Yeah. <laughs> this actually occurred not far from here at the Butterfly Pavilion yeah. in Westminster. Yeah, it was wonderful. You note that the pavilion between Denver and Boulder is the nation's first freestanding insectarium, mm-hmm. and it was for some time a site of research for tarantulas. Yeah, uh, they ran this huge conservation program. I don't know, has anyone in the audience ever been to uh, Butterfly Pavilion? Yeah, 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 yeah. Clap it. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. And uh, have you held Rosie? Who held Rosie? Yeah? Okay. Ro- Rosie is a tarantula? Rosie, she's a t- uh, Chilean rose, uh, you know, tarantula. And I got to go backstage and see how it's all done. There's, I don't know, God, I think there was like 300 plus, you know, tarantulas. I mean, my mouth went dry when I, when I was in there in such close proximity. I didn't realize there were many kinds of tarantulas. I thought tarantula was one kind of animal, but there are actually quite a few different types of tarantulas. Yeah, I think like 700 or 800 species. Huh. Um, and yeah, I got to help a couple uh, fornicate. And yeah, so basically what you do there is you take a paintbrush and the two of them are in the cage. And you rub, uh, they have eight legs and then appendages by the side of their mouth called pedipalps. And um, you rub one pedipalp on the male and on the female, and then you kind of scoot them together. And, you know, if they're feeling it, uh, they'll get it a Greco-Roman kind of pose, wrestling pose, and, you know, uh, there you go. In the chapter you call Even Educated Fleas Do It... <laughs> You write about bug sex. <laughs> Quote, there's nothing more compellingly absurd, alien, or violent than some bug-on-bug action. Yeah. I mean, this, this might be the stuff of classroom giggles, but it's also <laughs> a demonstration of just like the sheer diversity on this planet and oh. how much diverse expression there is among Insects, it, it must sort of blow your mind. Absolutely. I mean, like, this is 400 million years of evolution. This is what they're churning out. You know, this is, like, great design. And it's just funny that it works this way. I love it. <laughs> I like that you talk about great design because there's a lot to be learned from bugs in our own human processes. Oh, God, yeah. That's something known as biomimicry. Oh, yeah. And we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. Sure. But first, since we mentioned the Butterfly Pavilion, I, I want to note that there was a butterfly highway created by the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. What is that? Yeah, monarch butterflies. I mean, every year, uh, monarch butterflies migrate. There used to be about 
billion of them, I think, only a couple decades ago that would make this migration. Now we're looking at something like 50 million. And, you know, this is largely due to, you know, building on land and climate change and, you know, all these factors. So now there are, like, programs like Project Milkweed where they're trying to plant all the milkweeds, you know, along the highway. You know, they're expecting to, I think, quadruple the number, so about 200 million in about, wow, I think five years, something like that. I mean, soon, soon. You came across so many mind-blowing facts that we created a quiz for this show. <laughs> uh, with our audience, we're going to play The Lice is Right. <laughs> Sir, tell us your, your name and where you're from. Uh, my name is Ryan Fulkerson, and I'm from here in Colorado. Ryan, I'm going to read a series of statements, and you're going to tell us whether you think they are true or false, okay? All right. In 1947, the U.S. shot the first animals into space. They were fruit flies. Sounds true. It's true. Dung beetles base their navigation in part on the Milky Way. That one doesn't sound true, but I'm going to go ahead and say true. It is true. (laughs) By setting up a camera running at 3,500 frames a second, scientists discovered that when fleas jump, they can hit 400 Gs, 20 times the acceleration of a moon rocket re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. I believe that. That's true as well. (laughs) The clue to this game, Ryan... Everything is true. I'm getting that impression. (laughs) It's public radio, after all. (laughs) The United States government used to have a Bureau of Entomology. False. True! It's true! (laughs) I thought you were trying to get me. An ant's nest excavated in 1960 spanned nearly two football fields. Yeah. True! Yes! (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ryan, like my elementary school Little League team... Everyone gets a prize. So you have won something from the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch, which raises insects for foods. Do you want the Kentucky Fried Crickets or the Chirping Brownies? What was that second one? The Chirping Brownies. That's with cricket flour. Let's try the, the Chirping Brownies. The Chirping Brownies for Ryan. <laughs> you may think twice about squishing a bug after hearing today's show. Denver science writer David McNeil is author of Bugged, which documents his global journey to understand insects, which account for 75% of the animal kingdom. He spoke with Ryan Warner last year and said a bug's lifespan is pretty short, usually. I will say, surprisingly, I was in Brazil checking out these uh, genetically modified mosquitoes, and one of the professors I met up with, he had this ant colony, a leafcutter ant colony. And he had a queen that had been alive for 25 years, which I that had... could not believe. Yeah. Yeah. And did he tell you that that was exceptional? Oh, yeah. God. I mean, like, I mean, it was in controlled, you know, lab and everything. But for 25 years, he'd been taking care of the colony, watching it grow. So you were in Brazil in part to study genetically modified Mosquitoes. Yeah, there's a lab out there, uh, kind of like a little factory, actually. This is a way of potentially breeding mosquitoes that mm-hmm. won't carry diseases like Zika, which we heard so much about, right. that resulted in these 
babies with microcephaly, with mm-hmm. small heads. Yeah. How is it going, G- GMO oh, mosquitoes? And been... is, is that like playing with fire? <laughs> well, so they get accused sometimes of like, oh, it's like Jurassic Park. You're trying to play God, you know. But the success has been fascinating. It's like an elegant approach versus using pesticides, insecticides to, you know, fogging these things. So in the case of this lab, Oxitec, they bred 80s Egypti males that would transfer sterile progeny. They did it for a small 3,000 population-like town in Brazil. And nine months after they started, there was a, I think, 96% decrease in dengue fever within a small sample. And, and now they have the funding to build a bigger factory and do it for a population of, I think, 300,000. What it's is dengue? I don't know what dengue fever, how that manifests. Basically, you just, your whole body aches. It's just agonizing pain, like your bones, and there's nothing you can do about it. We've been using the term bugs and insects. <laughs> I learned in your book that insect just means in sections. Their mm-hmm. bodies are often sectioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, where does the term bug come from, though? Bug traces back to essentially bed bugs. Uh, bug is associated with ghosts. And so people would stir awake at night from bed bugs, and they would blame it on ghosts. And so, like, when they, you know, they just called the bug. And there's huh. multiple variations of spelling it. And, yeah, that's how it all began. I want to talk about bed bugs. <laughs> a while back, I recall Colorado ranked really high for its bed bug problem. Uh, a friend of mine had an infestation. He woke oh, up with bites all over, desperately tried to get rid of them. Yeah. They hid in between the pages of his books? Oh, yeah. God, like a, that's like a thing. Yeah, I, no, I've seen some uh, frass. That's insect um, Like in the spine of the book, yeah, too. They, they love that. That's called thigmotasis, living in closed spaces. So he would place his books in a bag in a freezer to try to kill them. And I think he only <laughs> got rid of these bed bugs after multiple rounds of pest control. Uh, how is it that you came, David McNeil, to feed your own <laughs> blood to bed bugs willingly? I've never been bitten before. I don't know. I'm curious. Um, I met this exterminator from Brooklyn, and his name's Cesar Soto de Leon. And so I went on a little exterminating trip with him. And I was really curious, like, what's it like to actually be bitten and all that, what it feels like. And he told me that he raises bed bugs in his apartment. He has <laughs> jars of them, and he feeds them his blood every two weeks. For what purpose would you do this? Uh, for study, to give them to other exterminators to experiment with different, you know, uh, concoctions. Huh. <laughs> Hopefully not planted in people's apartments. I mean, yes, right. <laughs> An exterminator with a supply of bed bugs. Yeah. One oh, God. Well, there was one, <laughs> there was one instance where uh, he gets a call or a text from his wife. Anyway, she sent an image of, like, uh, his two-year-old son playing with bed bugs on the floor of their apartment. And so he had to stop the job and, like, rush over there. They got out of their container. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. They got out of the door. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in <laughs> fact, before you conduct this experiment, you're talking to this bed bug exterminator, and his young son walks in. What is this, Papa? What's this? Bed Yeah, that's bed bug, my two-year-old. <laughs> you know what this is. Right, Papa? That's my little boy. What's that? Yeah, bed bugs. Okay, now get your butt out of here, because daddy's got to work. <laughs> so you begin the experiment. You recorded that as well as we'll hear. But what, what did you do exactly to be bitten by bed bugs? Okay, so I uh, went over to his apartment for a feeding. 
And um, <laughs> it's basically just a mason jar with a nylon top on it. And so, you know, you blow on it because they react to, you know, our breath. And I didn't know that. So, Oh, that- yeah. So if you don't want bed bugs, just don't breathe. I mean, like, <laughs> very simple. Um, and so they got excited. And, um, yeah, and then I just sat on his chair. I could only withstand it for, like, two minutes the first time. <laughs> so you put the opening of the jar directly against your skin. Oh, yeah. They can't get out because of the nylon, but... Uh, oh, I can see several of them on there now. It was about... <sighs> three feeding on me. Oh, no. <laughs> like five, six. They're just moving around. Oh, okay, yeah. They're moving around and I can feel them pricking. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Very brave, obviously. <laughs> are, are we coming up with more sophisticated ways of combating bed bugs, or is it like the same mm. sort of noxious tools? Well, I think the answer might be a combination of, like, organic ways of combating them, of paying attention of, like, moving furniture, where your furniture is coming from, inspecting stuff, what to look for. And then pair that with you're just going to have to change the type of methods that you use to exterminate them because bugs have survived for 100 million years. They're just going to adapt and they're going to become resistant to plenty of what you throw at them. This is what you find out from many exterminators is that bugs often evolve given how quick their lifespans are. They often evolve beyond the things that kill them very quickly. This happened in New York. They're just resistant to some of the things that used to work in the past. What should you watch out for if you're, I don't know, buying a couch or something? Well, used? Yeah, there's um, little black dots. Uh, That's frass that's insect poop poop and also little red dots which is blood and (laughs) actually when i was researching this book since i was like all itchy and freaked out um i was in japan and i lifted the mattress i was sleeping on after a couple days and i saw that just a constellation of all this black and red and i told them hey you have bed bugs (laughs) um (laughs) i don't know if they're here now or or what but um, did you check out? Yeah, a little bit. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad. You've learned, I think. <laughs> I'd like to go to this idea of biomimicry because it does come up a lot in your book. And it's really the idea that nature has perfected ways of doing things and that people stand to gain a lot if they mimic these systems oh, yeah. in industry, medicine. Would you give us a few examples of insect systems or abilities that can improve our lives? Oh, God. I mean, micro-drones, you know. Micro-drones? Yeah. I mean, oh, Harvard is excelling at this right now. They've, they created the RoboBee. Uh, it's four legs and, you know, a little computer chip. For a power source, and, and wings, two wings. Uh, for a power source, it's tethered. I mean, it has to be tethered until we could scale down the electronics to properly outfit them. But eventually, they'll be able to fly on their own, move in swarms. Right now, they have electrostatic charge in their feet, so they could actually perch on, like, wood, glass, metal. I mean, like, a variety of different surfaces. And what would be the the benefit of micro-drones? Oh, the Army, military. DARPA is already funding similar projects. DARPA Um, is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Yeah. They're studying bugs. Oh, yeah. Cockroaches. 
outfitted with cameras, and they could actually control swarms of cockroaches and say if there's a collapsed building from an earthquake or what have you, they could go into the building, map out pockets where there might be survivors, and get to those areas quicker. And they're working on deploying them like in real-life test scenario, I think, in the next three years. Well, this reminds me of another revelation in your book, one of the strangest, was that there's a home kit that allows you to control a bug remotely. Now you can have your very own cyborg cockroach, the RoboRoads. Using your mobile device as a controller, you can navigate an insect around your home. What the heck? (laughs) This is like a kit you add to a roach. Yeah. Yeah, a little discoid cockroach. And And then you control it with a smartphone. Yeah. Yep. How is that possible? And I suppose this connects to the research you're talking about? (laughs) I mean, you're just rewiring their... Yeah, exactly. uh, I wanted to test this out. Uh, You basically rewire their neural impulses by uh, clipping their antennae, sticking a wire in there, putting a little circuitry on their back, and then, um, you know, if if they don't pull out the wires like (laughs) my cockroach Bill Effing Murray did... (laughs) You had a cockroach (laughs) named Bill Murray. Yeah. And he removed his own... (laughs) Robo Roach kit. Yeah, I wasn't digging it. And, uh, you know, and neither were any, like, ladies that came over. It, it, was, it was a big deterrent. <laughs> yeah. Then there's the idea that bugs might influence architecture. There's a self-cooling shopping center in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And it's modeled after termite mounds. Right. Termite mounds are built with poop and dirt. Uh, I mean, poop is really go-to in the insect world. Like, it's a big thing. And, and they just create this, like, kind of, when wind is blowing through, like, it gets pulled into, like, through these tiny holes, and it keeps the bottom where all the breeding is happening, like, very thermal and, you know, warm. And then, yeah, distributes elsewhere. So just its sheer architecture is improving energy efficiency. What I'm really happy about, it's because I'm a needle phobic. I, I just, I don't like needles. There is this one uh, researcher in Japan that is creating a needle that you won't even feel. Like it vibrates at the frequency that this, you know, a mosquito's uh, proboscis also vibrates. Right. It's so often <laughs> that when I'm stuck by a mosquito, it's after that I learn. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's the, through this reaction that you get from their saliva. Yeah. So if medicine could give me an injection like a mosquito... It might yeah. not hurt. Oh, yeah, no problem. I mean, one thing that he has to work on, though, is I, the needle's a bit brittle right now, so you don't want that breaking off in your arm. <laughs> Bugs help us solve murders, and you went to something <laughs> called a body farm yeah. to learn more about that. Huh? What was that like? What, what's a body farm? Oh, boy. Um, so there are these people called forensic entomologists, and, and one thing they do is uh, they study the development of maggots, which maggots are the babies of flies. And you could actually discern like down to like the hour, depending on how much information you have, when that person died. So if you're ever abandoned out in the you know wilderness, you want a forensic entomologist to check it out. And so I got the opportunity to go to a body farm in Texas where the temperature is warm, you know, basically like, I don't know, eight months, nine months out of the year. And I saw firsthand uh, maggots at work, and it was, it was scientific. It was incredible. It wasn't gross. There is now a body farm in Colorado. It's operated by Colorado Mesa University, and this is from their website. The Forensic Investigation Research Station is centered upon an outdoor facility 
focused on research, teaching, and service regarding the decomposition of human remains. So there are human bodies sprawled in these body farms. They take donations, if you want your remains to, (laughs) to benefit science. And you write that the first to show up are fly families, which sniff out bodies from four miles away or further. You also write, should you be murdered or abandoned dead, insects are, in fact, your best friends. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a VIP party. A lot of people, you know, a lot of insects show up for that one. <laughs> we don't often think of how bugs communicate. Um, ants are particularly fascinating in this respect. You write that revelations of ant communication have given us faster travel routes to Saturn. Huh? Right. (laughs) So what ants are doing is, as they scavenge for food, they leave down a little trail of chemicals. And so the more ants travel down that trail, they get these... Of chemicals. Of chemicals, picking up on it, and food's coming from that direction. Okay. And they're communicating real quick. Some some species are communicating real quick by antennal taps, almost like Morse code. So as they pass by each other, they're just patting like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, talking to each other. And so um, as they reinforce those trails, the, they become shorter routes. You know, some scientists in Italy, they came up with an algorithm that mimicked this. And the result is like faster truck routes. I mean, the amount of efficiency is incredible. And now there's uh, other studies basically mapping how ant colonies move in trees. They're, they're finding that it kind of reflects how our brain operates. Again, it's like nature is showing us something. It's revealing something inside of ourselves in patterns in nature. Right. And say, like, they're crawling along leaves and all that stuff, and they're foraging around there. Uh, Something were to come and hit a leaf, destroy what their pathway. The way they repair that network, I mean, it could illuminate some ways in how we could help repair minds, Alzheimer's. It could be insight into uh, a lot of different things. Wow. If I squish a bug, can they feel it? No. No, they don't, but don't do that. <laughs> tell me, tell me, did you squish bugs before this book and then, like, stop oh, afterwards? God. Yeah, I feel terrible. I feel terrible. I mean, like, I, I, you know, I wouldn't empty a can of rain on one, but yeah, no, uh, no, it's awful. It's awful. I you, feel terrible. You feel terrible because of what you've learned about them. <laughs> yeah. They're really cool. <laughs> it's time for another round of The Lice is Right. <laughs> Uh, tell me your name and where you're from. Carolyn Diana, and I'm from here in Boulder. Oh, right. Uh, like the previous round, every answer is true. <laughs> Fantastic. True or false? <laughs> Dung beetles can carry more than a thousand times their body weight. Oh, true. That is true. How did you? I, I'm amazed you knew that. Huh? Bombardier beetles shoot a jet of boiling chemicals at predators. True. It's also true. Some <laughs> assassin bugs wear the bodies of their kill to blend in among their next victims. Horribly true. <laughs> Dr. Seuss, before he wrote Green Eggs and Ham, created cartoons for an insecticide. These cartoons oddly resembled the Grinch who stole Christmas. True. Also true. <laughs> She's got the hang of this game. <laughs> 
People once thought that yellow fever was not spread by mosquitoes, but via air electricity from telegraph transmissions. True. This was also true. Congratulations. <laughs> Your reward are Kentucky Fried Crickets. Those are really good, by the way. They're fantastic. And let's talk about eating bugs. You tried a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, boy, right. many courses in Japan. What was the tastiest thing you ate oh, and the boy. least tasty? It, the tastiest thing I had, and I, I crave it sometimes. Like, no joke. I, I, it, it was so delicious. Um, it's this soy-boiled locust that uh, feed on rice leaves. And when you bite into it, you just have this crunch and this bright herbal taste that is unlike anything else I've tried before. It's incredible. Soy locusts. I ate the whole bowl, yeah. The whole bowl. How many locusts do you think that was? (laughs) Uh, You know, probably like 20 or 30. (laughs) Wow. Okay, your least favorite bug to eat. Oh, God. Um, It was the diving beetle. The translator that was accompanying... um, uh, she said it tastes like the way a drain pipe smells. And, <laughs> and for me, it, was, it tasted the way a dead body smells. Like, it, it reminded me of this, like, I don't know, a charred broccolini with Parmesan. <laughs> well, that sounds, per- that sounds lovely compared to <laughs> your first simile. How is Antohol? Antohol. Yeah, Antohol. Uh, it's just ants and some... Alcohol, which I had no idea what the alcohol was, but uh, not bad. They had this like sour kind of like taste going on, and it's supposed to be good for your health. That you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> where where is the U.S. on on bug consumption? Because you point out that that other cultures uh, more widely accept bugs as food. Oh yeah, the U.S. I, I mean, people often compare it to the story of sushi. I think it's going to take a bit longer. You know, in the 1960s, you have sushi uh, picking up steam a little bit more. 1980s, like, oh, yeah, you haven't tried it? Come on. And then nowadays, I mean, you go into the market and you can find it. But the notion to Americans of eating raw fish was, was widely yeah. rejected at a certain point yeah, and it, then embraced. It, it, and, you know, and it's possible with insects that we might warm up to them a bit in a way. And crickets are often called the gateway bug. Um, <laughs> especially someone had brownies today. I, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's there were, made there were brownies made with cricket flour. Yeah, yeah. So in this way, the food is not recognizably a bug. Is, right. that, is that maybe the gateway to the gateway? I, I, exactly. That's the gateway to the gateway. I mean, before you could look at something with a face and bite into it, yeah, maybe have some powder, some process thing. Um, there's projects and efforts in other countries um, to help malnourished children you know, by giving them insects. It's a cheap, feasible way, and it cuts down our footprint on this planet. Bugs like having sex. And so they really enjoy it when they're in close proximity. And so you don't need, you could take a shoe box or like a little Christmas uh, ornament box and have food for a while. Huh. And they love it. Are there places where there's like a bug box instead of a bread box? I actually, well, no. But, but no, there is a mealworm box, though. You could get one. Okay. <laughs> and it's really sleek looking. I, I, I'm thinking about getting one myself because it's a never-ending supply, essentially, of food. And how are mealworms? Oh, God, they're great. Um, I'd say kind of a little nutty. 
maybe a little potato-ish, but I will say it's fantastic with beer. Like, <laughs> I mean, you substitute peanuts and forget about it. Like, you, you know, just watch the game and there you go. And so there, you know, these uh, ladies from Austria, they created this like tiered <laughs> mealworm generator where you have the eggs and adults at the top. Next level is the next growth stage and so forth and so on till you reach the bottom where you have your mealworms that are ready to fry up and then you're done. What more do you want to know about bugs? Oh, that's a good question. Jeez. Uh, and there's some talk about turning this project bugged into a television program. Yeah, th- there's, there's talk. Um, one thing I'm very keen on is actually exploring and trying to expose a bit more the world of entomophagy, which is eating insects. There's so much going on right now. And as our population grows to 9 billion in, I think, 2050, we're just going to have to find not a replacement kind of food, but a different option. There's, you know, Michelin-rated chefs that are cooking with insects now. There are, you know, all these companies that are sprouting all over the place that produce processed insect foods. Chirps, started by two ladies from, I think, uh, Harvard. Um, These are like chips with cricket flour. Yeah, yeah, and I actually tricked my sister into eating a whole bunch of them. Um, (laughs) But she talked to me, you know, eventually. There's this opportunity to explore more of what that relationship looks like. And um, right now, that really intrigues me. What what is it going to look like in the future? Well, David, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ryan. <laughs> Denver author David McNeil speaking with Ryan Warner last year. It was recorded last year at the Dairy Art Center in Boulder. His book is called Bugged, the Insects Who Rule the World and the People Obsessed with Them. And read an excerpt, and yes, see Tarantulas Doing It at cprnews.org. Birds do it. Bees do it. Even educated fleas do it. Let's do it. Let's fall in love. Your feedback now on fracking in Loud and Clear. There was strong reaction to our interview with author Daniel Ramey. His book, The Fracking Debate, aims to take a balanced look at the benefits and hazards that come with today's oil and gas boom. He told us the debate is unique in Colorado. When you look at research that surveys people about their views on the oil and gas industry, what you tend to find is that people living closer to the industry tend to support it more than those who live further away. But how does the picture differ in Colorado, do you think, with that more maybe suburban kind of development? Many people move to this area because of the natural amenities that it offers, the beautiful mountains, the opportunities for hiking, swimming, fishing, skiing, all that stuff. And if you move to this area with those types of sites and activities in mind, and then you find an oil well in your backyard, uh, or you see a drilling rig in your community, that might not coincide with what you would hope to get out of living in this part of Colorado. Some of you didn't feel Ramey's approach struck the right balance. Harv Tiedelbaum from Colorado's chapter of the Sierra Club wrote in saying, Emerging data reveal problems and harms that, can be su- that can't be sufficiently averted through regulation. Quote, There is no evidence that fracking can operate without threatening public health directly or without imperiling climate stability, upon which public health depends. Meanwhile, R.L. Rittmaster called the interview important and says we all need to keep educating ourselves. He thinks Ramey's understanding of the Front Range's oil and gas challenges was, quote, woefully lacking. 
He continues, the discussion certainly did not include that we are in the arid West, and it was blithely stated that each well requires enormous amounts of fresh water. It was not counterbalanced that this is quickly becoming a limited resource with or without climate change. And finally, Carolyn McCormick sent a compliment for the interview with Ramey and the rest of the day's show, quote, finding a way to elevate conversations about important and often divisive subjects so that people can learn, hear and understand is tough and vital. Listen and decide for yourself. Our conversation about the new book, The Fracking Debate, is at CPR.org. And while you're there, click connect to get in touch with us. Finally today, NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts feature artists performing stripped-down sets behind a desk at NPR headquarters. The fourth annual Tiny Desk Contest is underway right now, with musicians across the country submitting videos of themselves. The winner will head to Washington, D.C. to perform an official Tiny Desk Concert. The contest runs through March 25th. Until then, NPR's highlighting some of their early favorites, including an artist from Colorado Springs. Nina and the Hold Tight features Brazilian guitarist and singer Nina de Freitas, whose throaty blues alto is reminiscent of another famous Nina. Here's their tiny decimation, Salt and Blood. Hold tight with salt and blood. The song may take the band from Colorado Springs to NPR and DC if they win this year's Tiny Desk Contest. And that's our show. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Our managing producers, Rachel Estabrook. Producers, Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Stephanie Wolf. Audio engineers, Michael Hughes, Matt Hers, and Shane Rumsey. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.